Robert, we're really talking about a measurement problem that's kind of the same as the money problem, right? Which was a measurement problem, right? Yeah. If you're talking about inflation, you want to know the quantity of money and the quantity of money is important in determining inflation, especially its relative yes. position to economic conditions, but you don't know how to quantify or measure the quantity of money. It's the same thing. If you're inaccurately measuring the quantity of labor that's available to be used, right. Yeah. You're going to be fooling yourself. So yes. what is it that economists actually do here? Wow. So 50 funny. years of, of just essentially fooling themselves into believing they understand things that they don't. It's yeah. This may speak to the proclivity of a lot of Austrian economists that they're very adverse to measurement and metrics in general. So they think that it can be misleading, which I can't, I guess this would be a great instance of that, this Phillips curve debacle. Oh, and that's, that's one of the banes of Austrian economists is that, you know, recognizing how stupid that was in, from the very beginning. Yeah. And we're still relying on it today. Is that right? It's It's gone through several different uh, intellectual iterations where mm. it's been, you know, econ neo-Keynesian economists have claimed they've updated it, made it more accurate and more usable. And like I said, they use more inflation expectations instead of, uh, you know, just raw unemployment rate versus uh, CPI or some things like that. But by and large, you know, again, as we said, if if you don't know how to measure the thing you're attempting to control yes. or ex exploit and manipulate, right? It's you know, garbage in, garbage out. That's the old, right. Uh, yeah. the, old, this, the old programming. I, link. I love uh, Wittenstein's ruler on this. Says if you're trying to measure a table with a ruler, but you can't trust the ruler, you don't know if you're measuring the table or the ruler. You know, you're just you're in this domain <laughs> of, right. of relativism. You can't figure anything out. So. That's excellent yeah, points. So, and then when unemployment and inflation increased together, this was the infamous stagflation in the 70s. Right. And, and this Friedman's argument was essentially that uh, people would become sort of normalized to higher rates of inflation. So it wouldn't matter. You know, the Phillips curve wouldn't apply because it would only apply in the short yeah. run. That long term expectations actually determined rates of inflation as well as rates of unemployment, essentially because you know, high levels of inflation tend to be not very good for uh, economic conditions either. And right. if you become normalized to the one, you essentially become normalized to the other. Incredible. And then, so... Yeah, and the thing was, nobody knew how to get out of it. It was sort yeah. of like, you know, in 1970, you know, August 15th, 1971, of course, Nixon closed the gold window, but that wasn't even his point. It was everything else in the Nixon. I mean, he sort of threw that in at the end. And by the way, he didn't, nobody told the Fed about this. The Fed, you know, supposedly the Fed's printing press, fiat currency, they were supposed to be set free on August 15, or August 16, 1971. Nobody at the Treasury told the Fed they were going to do this because wow. nobody cared. The Fed wasn't even an important part of any of these things because at that time, you know, the modern the modern Fed that we all have an image of was, was essentially a recent, recent uh, fiction, a recent creation. Mm. Back then, the Fed was a subservient to Treasury anyway. But hmm. by and large, you know, Nixon in August of 71, closing the gold window was supposed to be a way for him to devalue the dollar and maybe get back on a gold exchange at some point in a time. But really, his idea was about essentially socialism, wage and price controls, wow. because they did not know how to break the inflationary paradigm. They mm -hmm. didn't know how to get out of it because they didn't really understand what was going on in it. And that's why it was one thing after another, after another, after another, stretching out an entire 15 to 17 year period of just everybody sort of looking at each other, wondering how the hell do we fix this? Because they didn't really understand the problem to begin with. Wow. So, and this gets, I mean, clearly gets out of control and then it's Volcker that comes in and does that's, something that's about this. That's the legend. And that's where the expectations policy is born. The idea that Paul Volcker and a committed central bank can can can, can uh, essentially do whatever it wants. If it says I'm going to be an inflation fighter, then don't fight the Fed. Yeah. And the part that people always get wrong about that is that nobody really knows what Volcker did. Hmm. <laughs> it's like we just assume that Volcker ended the great inflation because he raised the, he let the level of money rates go through the roof, and that provoked a double dip recession in the early 1980s. But what did he really do? Mm -hmm. Again, it's it's essentially uh, the Fed trying to take credit for everything and, and subsuming it under this expectations policy where they we do if we want to do something, we're going to be able to do it. If we want to break inflation, we're going to do it. And you don't fight the Fed because right. that's what's going on. 
But if you go back to the late 70s and early 1980s, while all this was going on, nobody was attributing the Fed much of anything. They yeah, were not yeah, saying, yeah. hey, Paul Volcker, our hero, let's, let's, give, let's give him a parade. It was sort of like, we don't really know what's happening. And by the middle 1980s, we didn't have another explanation for what's going on. So maybe it was Volcker. I mean, wow. it could have been anything, right? So I mean, what happened? Do we maybe know it what was. Happened? The euro dollar system essentially broke. It got to a point where that early initial phase had gone too far. And in those recessions of you know, 1980 and 1981, 82, mm-hmm. it sort of reconstituted itself. It snapped back. And when we came out of it in the, in the middle 1980s, it focused in other directions because mm. all of the things that had happened during the 1970s great inflation, like the Latin debt crisis, for example, which mm-hmm. was a big part of it, you know, this global expansion of money, that was a bad place to be. So right. all the stuff that the euro dollar system during, did during the 1970s, the euro dollar participants like, we can't do that stuff again. Let's try something else. And they went into essentially hyper financialization where much of this balance sheet resources started to get dedicated into these even more esoteric financial forms like um, euro dollar uh, dollar futures, mm. interest rate swaps that became standardized in 1985, which you know ISDA got formed, which allowed the system to sort of go into a you know less real economy uh, inflation more asset type uh, activities so it was the these economic crises then that caused a drawdown in the euro dollar expansion is that what corrected absolutely yeah that's what corrected Latin the debt crisis was for the time i mean the numbers today sound quaint it's like you know 30 billion dollars in, yeah, in yeah. bad debt i mean it's yeah. just, that's a drop in the bucket today but back in 1960 or 1979 that was an enormous problem. Yeah. In fact, they didn't solve really the Latin debt crisis until the early 90s. You know, the issue of Brady bonds and tequila bonds and everything else. It was really a lingering problem where the euro dollar system was, we got all this capacity. We got all this ability. What do we do with it? And so you had this period between 1980 and 1982, 83, where they kind of sat back and just let everything play out until it started to look like, okay, the economy is starting to recover in, in certainly in the United States. 83 and 84. So back at it. Right. Except okay. back at it in a very different way than it had been done beforehand, okay. which is why you have more hyper asset financialization post the post night or post great inflation than mm-hmm. what you did in pre great inflation. So then does that get us into the savings and loan crisis in the 80s? Absolutely. In fact, really, the funny thing is about the savings and loan crisis that people don't, you know, don't really realize is that it was exactly this. It was savings and loans, which were supposed to be these traditional mom and pop type depository institutions. Mm-hmm. But some of these mom and pop institutions got to be kind of big through you know, some strategic mergers. Mm-hmm. And then they got jealous. They looked at all of these global commercial banks, these larger banks, especially in the operating euro dollar system and said, I want to be that too. Mm-hmm. They're making all this money, making money. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. And the savings and loans the ones that adopted that wholesale euro dollar balance sheet approach, they're the ones that ended up by 1985 and 86 creating the savings and loan crisis because, mm. because they got themselves in over their heads. And a lot of it had to do with bad repo collateral, believe it or not, especially a couple of the SNLs in the early crisis period essentially were defrauded by bad collateral. But the, the idea is they wanted to adopt this, this new model, this evolutionary model that commercial banks around the world had done, but that was not a really good idea because they had no expertise and no real, no real depth in trying to do those things and try to adopt this euro dollar system in a domestic SNL type safe depository uh, industry that was just unsuitable for it. So that's that's really what the SNL crisis came from was again this transition between the old way and the yeah. new way. So that's interesting. So these final financial institutions SNLs that actually had reserves, these are domestic institutions, I assume. They they tried to emulate these euro dollar institutions that were making money by making money and that's what got them into trouble. Could you maybe expand upon you mentioned bad repo collateral. What happened there? What happened there was, you know, you're in the repo market. You don't really know who's on the other side of it. And that's really kind of the point, right? You know, in an unsecured market like federal funds or just, you know, euro dollar deposit or something like that, you're essentially, you're doing business with banks that you know, right? We talked mm-hmm. about that in the pedigree, the Cayman Islands bank with a Goldman Sachs right. letter of credit. You know that guy. 
So yep. you can do a you can do a uh, unsecured uh, interbank transaction with them because you've been doing business. They have the reputation established mm-hmm. and everything else. It's really yep. a small type of club where there's not a lot of you know other people. There's not a lot of new names coming into it because by and large reputation matters. And if you don't have mm-hmm. a reputation, you can't do it. Right. But how do you expand this interbank type of system, wholesale money system? to a mass audience. Well, one way you could do it, circumvent pedigree and reputation is by financial collateral, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know you, but if you post some kind of collateral to me, then if you default, then I, I can just seize your assets and sell it and I'm good. Yeah. So we yeah. have a low risk type of a low risk type of transactions between people who don't necessarily know each other. Yeah. And the problem with that is it opens the door to manipulation, especially if you're sort of you're sort of a, a noob to the repo system and right. maybe you don't understand that, you know, I'm going to give you some crap collateral and try to manipulate into manipulate you into valuing it more than it should be when it's really a piece of junk. Yeah. Next thing you know, I'm going to default on the loan because why wouldn't I? Yeah. I gave you a piece of junk. I now have your cash. I don't really care. Right. Now you're a depository institution with state regulators and federal regulators and everybody on your back. And you've just lost money on a the safest transaction that's supposed to be out there. And of course, what does that do? It leads to depository loss, right? Because right. depositors say, this idiot just got taken on a repo transaction. I don't know what a repo transaction is, but he lost yeah. money on a safe, safe loan. Yeah. How how good is this bank? I might want to take my deposits out and put them on and put them at a better bank. Yeah. That's really how it started to snowball because a lot of these SNLs got themselves in way over their head with a way of doing banking that they didn't really understand. So the so I'm just there's all sorts of you know the FDIC reports from the early 1990s looking back on the looking back on the SLO cri- SNL crisis. There's a wealth of information there about all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. What they said was that, look, most of the SNLs that ended up failing and being taken over, they were growing themselves. And it was completely, completely, uh, you know, almost binary. The yeah. SNLs that, that that survived or didn't participate in SNL crisis were just people or banks that just stayed SNLs the whole time. Right. And the trouble banks were all of these SNLs that tried to adopt this wholesale model. Uh, and I don't I can't I can't remember the statistics off my head. But like I said, the FDIC reports from the early 1990s. There's a lot of detail there about exactly what happened there, which was they wanted to adopt this monetary model because right. why wouldn't of course. they? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody likes free money. Right. Right. But- I mean, look at these other, you know, these, what used to, I mean, I think that's part of the problem too, is that we don't realize that, you know, not that all that long ago, there used to be two different types of banks that had been separated because of the great depression, you know, I'm talking uh, yeah. about Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall, yeah. There used to be banks, depository banks, which were called banks. Yeah. And then there were these other euro dollar institutions that were called commercial banks yeah. because they were doing other things. They largely started out in the securities business, which yeah. is what allowed them to start this balance sheet manipulation, things like that. And the depository institutions by the late 70s and early 80s, we want to be like them right. because they're yeah. making all the money. They have all the political power. They have everything that we want. Yeah. Why not? They're a bank. We're a bank. Everybody's a bank. Why not just <laughs> why not just do that? That's interesting. Can you uh, so on the bad repo collateral? Is this just a fraudulent actor misrepresenting their treasury oh, holdings yes. as collateral? It's not. No, in a lot of cases, it wasn't treasuries. It was just a piece of junk. It was oh. an illiquid piece of junk where I, you know I give you a corporate letter. Uh, oh. just a corporate letter and you and say, hey, this is this is what everybody in repo does. Well, you don't know any better. You accept it. As it turns out, it's a worthless piece of paper. Or even if it's a worthful, it's not worth what it's supposed to be worth to over collateralize the loan I just gave you. So you default on the loan and I have a, a, a security that's less than I thought it was worth, which gotcha. means I'm going to lose money on what's supposed to be a safe transaction. Gotcha. So it doesn't have to be outright fraud. Fraud. It can just yeah. be simple manipulation about what's priced what. And that's yeah. really that's that, that's sort of the downside of this, and it's still to this day a problem in repo because how do you evaluate and how do you how do you value the collateral that's used in widespread fashion? And you know some of it's because of market inputs, but in some in some cases, in a lot of cases, really you get into subprime mortgages and things like that. We'll talk about later, I assume. Yeah. It gets really difficult. It's a lot more difficult than you think. Yeah, I was just going to say it has kind of an echo of what happened in 2008, it sounds like. Um, bad collateral. The SNL crisis in a lot of ways, because it was this wholesale 
this wholesale model was kind of a test run for what came up in 2007 and 2008 because it was these esoteric monetary forms that regulators were like, we don't know what the hell this stuff is. I mean, repo, what's a repurchase agreement? Yeah. And even by then, you know, I should mention that the repo market was not standardized to that point. In the 70s and 80s in particular, it hadn't really been standardized. So hmm. banks and counterparties were treating repurchase agreements as literal repurchase agreements, as if title had been transferred. And it let, led to an enormous amount of confusion and, and messiness too, which you would expect. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single-source solution for everything Bitcoin. But, you know, in all... You know, I spent a lot of years studying this world too, but I never heard Euro dollar spelled out like that. Uh, were you the first really to do this deep dive? I'm the first that I've noticed. And there are a few people here and there who have mentioned Euro dollar, but they never get the whole thing. There's like, yeah. you know, they pick off a little, like petrodollar, they pick off a little piece of it and yeah. they kind of poke at it a little bit, but they never really got into the whole thing. Right. And I think it's simply because. First of all, there's too much, but they don't have the right background to understand what banks are actually doing. Mm. You have to be in the mindset of understanding what banks do and why they do things. And, you know, a basis swap, for example, that's beyond the capability of most people who investigate what a monetary or money and economy are. They don't they, they can't comprehend that thing. They don't they don't have the accounting basis to understand how banks put together balance sheets. And I think that's really been the impediment for people mm. putting all of this stuff together is they, you know, we can see like Brent, ben, ben Bernanke's Global Savings Club. You know, they can see it. They can think, you know, they can feel the edges of it, but they can't yeah. get their heads around the whole thing. Have you, have you written a book about this? No, I, I will never, I probably never will because I can't see spending, you know, six months or a year on something nobody's ever going to buy. <laughs> it's like, it's the cost benefit analysis is yeah. know, it's not really favorable. But you're already publishing. I mean, you publish, like you said, multiple times a week. So that's the gist. Yeah, and of I'm it, trying right? to, I'm trying to work, make a more concrete organization called Eurodollar University, where the output is to try to put this together in a coherent, organized fashion. Gotcha. And the problem is, first of all, coming up with the, you know, how do we do that? And the second is, what is the right medium to do it? Right. And that's, that's really difficult. So I think what we're deciding on is, you know, we're doing our podcast, but that's really sort of, you know, just ad hoc and everything else. Yeah. Try to do some more podcasts that are explanatory and try to do them in an organized fashion so that people can follow along from sort of beginning to end. And the, but the problem is, as we're finding out is, there's no place to start. It's not like you can say, okay, here's, let's we'll start here and just move yeah. in linear progression. Because as we're saying, as we're finding out, we talk about one thing and it leads us off into a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And it's just, it's really hard to put it together one step after another, after another. Yeah. I've struggled had, with that. Have you had feedback from policymakers or? I talk to them occasionally. Um, you know, for example, 2018, actually it was May 9th, maybe 2019, 2018, I had a meeting with the vice president's chief economist, which was a complete and utter waste of everyone's time. Mm. Um, I've been to the treasury department before and it's just, it's, it's not worth it. Wow. Where I've had more success is talking to people in the media, mm -hmm. but most of the media, what they'll tell you is 
you know, the shit that they write, they have to write it. They're told that I have to write a story. This is the story. Mm-hmm. I can't write your stuff because it's not approved. It's not, it's not editorial. It's, we take all of our, our editorial standards from what central bankers tell us. Mm-hmm. So they can't write about it, even though they want to learn about it. There's wow. a few of them that have, you know, Andy Kessler at the Wall Street Journal. I've been talking a lot with John Dyser from the Financial Times, who just wrote a collateral story just today, I think. Um, it's kind of getting out there, but it, it's certainly, it's slow. It's, um, it's tough to, it's even tough to get people engaged with it because by and large, there's, it's, this is so contrary to their expectations, their initial responses, this cannot possibly be true. Right. It doesn't matter how much evidence you show them, how much history, you know, I can quote, I can quote central bankers from, you know, from the beginning, it doesn't matter because it's just so far different from what we're supposed to believe that it sounds like a conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's, there's this very strong status quo bias. It seems uh, I'm seeing a lot too, with this, all this vaccine mandate stuff. People are just like, Oh no, it could not possibly be bad. I'm like, I side with George Gammon on this. I was like, you don't mandate things like that. No, like, let the individual decide. I mean, everyone decide for themselves. You like the vaccine. Great. You don't. Great. But the, the idea of mandating it. Well, it doesn't make think any that's fine. Sense. That scares the if shit out of If you're vaccinated, me. what do you care if somebody's not? Exactly. <laughs> you're protected. Well, so it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, I'm not vaccinated. I've had COVID, but I'm supposed Same. to get vaccinated, even yeah. though I have natural immunity, which is a million times better than some yes. vaccine. Yeah. I get, it's all about government control. It's yeah. I can't prove that I have I have antibodies. There is right. no good antibody test. So the government to check off their box, they need me to get a vaccine. Yeah, that's not science. That's politics. Yeah, I'm not. I'm in the same boat. I've had COVID, and I'm not vaccinated, and I'll never be vaccinated. I'm exact. My daughters just got COVID. Two of my daughters just got COVID, mm. and you know what? They didn't even have a runny nose. They lost their sense of smell for two days, and that was it. Wow. But I'm supposed to, I suppose I, we joke around all the time. My, my, my second daughter just got tested, uh, tested positive a week ago. Every time I see her, I'm like, Oh, you look dead. This is so (laughs) awful. She's like, (laughs) absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. That's great. This is supposed to be like the black death in the plague. (laughs) Yeah. It kicked my ass. My daughter had it. She wasn't very affected, but it kicked my ass. Me too. It was not fun. Yeah. Oh, great. You know, it was not a, it was not a good disease. Yeah. But it wasn't like I was going to die. Yeah. No, I, yeah. Just like a week of bed rest pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift back into this. Um, all right. So we get through savings and loan crisis. I guess things get back to kind of business as usual. Euro dollar system, I presume, starts to expand again. Yeah, then- qualitatively as well as quantitatively. And in fact, I think the 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 mature phase, which is the post, you know, it's 1985 and forward, is where you really start to see the widespread adoption of all these more esoteric things like repo collateral and securities lending, as well as derivatives, currency swaps, and interest rate swaps, and those little kinds of balance sheet tools that yeah. really unlock. The true potential behind this, you know, reserveless virtual currency based on bank balance sheet construction factors. So all of these policy tools, like they become increasingly esoteric or exotic. This is further interconnecting bank balance sheets and this the these interbank liabilities, right? So it's flowing even faster and in more complicated patterns. Is that right? Absolutely. And you know, central bankers trying to keep up are just simply saying. We can't keep up, so we're going to try to keep it simple for the public, especially. Yeah, we'll just we'll just say we're going to move a federal federal funds rate around in the U.S. There's other rates in central banks around the world, but by and large, the the modern central bank model is not a central bank; it's something else entirely. And that's yeah. really kind of the other key takeaway here is that the monetary private monetary system, the private euro dollar system that does money, kind of leaves central banks out in the cold. Right. They're kind of pretending like they're the center of everyone's universe and then they have the vested interest in making people believe that. But in reality, it's all about banks and banks balance sheet. And there's sort of a symbiosis with, 
hey, we'll, we'll keep up the pretense for central bankers because that gives us political cover. Mm-hmm. We've sort of, in, we've sort of we've evolved into this uh, weird, you know, you know you guys don't have any monetary authority, but you do have some political cover that you can provide the banking system. And so we won't spoil the, the, the uh, we won't tell anybody that you're, you're a bunch of frauds because you are kind of our political operation to what is essentially the exogenous monetary system and situation. Mm, interesting. Um, okay, so the next crisis chronologically is the dot com bubble, late late nineties or into the early two thousands. Is yeah, that right? Before we even got to that, though, there was the nineteen ninety seven ninety eight Asian financial crisis. Oh, yeah, which I think is an important part of the development because. In many ways, I know we said the SNL crisis was sort of a precursor event. The Asian financial crisis was very much a precursor event to the global financial crisis in every way imaginable. Mm. I know, again, it's another one of those things that, you know, Americans in particular don't really know, follow too closely, don't really understand what happened, mm. simply because it sounded like there's a bunch of stuff going on in Asia that had nothing to do with us, mm-hmm. when in fact, it was a dollar shortage. It wasn't a global dollar shortage. Mm. It was a it was the euro dollar system experiencing a regional spasm that took all the same types of forms that we would see uh, fail in 2007 and 2008, leading up to, which was you know the Lehman Brothers of the time LTCM, which is involved mm-hmm. with balance sheet stuff. Yeah, it's right. funny you read some of the transcripts, which again I'm the world's most boring human. I've done this. <laughs> the FOMC transcripts from '98 in particular. And they're all just throwing up their hands. I, one of them, I can't remember the exact wording. I wish I, I probably should pull it up. But they're talking about LTCM. And, and Alan Greenspan, or one of the FOMC members, says, can you pass me a balance sheet for LTCM? And the other guy says, don't bother. Everything that they everything they do is off balance sheet. And it was sort of one of those wow. poignant moments where it was like, the light bulb should have gone off here. Yes. But they looked at LTCM like it was an outlier, like it was an isolated case. And, oh, well, LTCM is doing all this off-balance sheet stuff and balance sheet manipulation, all this other crap. And, you know, it was Robert Merton, who was a Nobel Prize winner, you know, mm-hmm. t- tremendous mathematician. So, you know, they downplayed the significance of LTCM when, in fact, LTCM was nothing more than Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers before we got to those. Yeah. And they knew at the time what was really going on was, <laughs> this weird balance sheet stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, and one of the, and LTCM for the audience, I don't know if we said it out loud, long-term capital management, they had effectively represented that they had perfected this risk model, right? They had the quote unquote, the ultimate spreadsheet, if you will, that they could somehow, um, I mean, you could speak to this more intelligent, intelligently than I, but they could create near uh, risk-free return, through their risk management model. Um, and that yeah, blew up just a couple of years in, right? It was five years. <laughs> five years, yeah. yeah. And the funny thing, okay, yeah, that was the idea, but it was really what we talked about before, which was how do you how do you create and manage a bank balance sheet? Mm-hmm. And the way you do it is quantitatively through these mathematical models. And what Robert mm-hmm. Burton and some of his cronies, John Merriweather of Solomon Brothers fame, what they said was, we have these very sophisticated mathematical models that allow us to safely navigate all of these esoteric functions, including their favorite tool of choice was interest rate swaps. Mm-hmm. So their off balance sheet, all the stuff that they had created off balance sheet, as we said before, these interest rate swaps actually function like money. And so there was right. this hidden form of money off the LTCM's balance sheet that LTCM believed were completely risk-free. And because they had these proprietary models, they were using gain on sale and present value accounting, creating value out of future cash flows mm-hmm. and expected future cash flows. They were essentially everything that banks were becoming all distilled into a hedge fund. Wow. But because they were a hedge fund, Alan Greenspan and his cronies, you know, policymakers at the time thought, well, that was just one hedge fund. Right. And the funny right. thing about it is at the very same time LTCM was doing this, uh, JP Morgan had created something called risk metrics, which they began selling in 1995 to yeah. everybody on Wall Street. And guess what risk metrics was? It was essentially the database that was very similar, if not the exact same, that Robert Merton was using for LTCM. 
So LTCM wasn't a one-off loan outlier. Yeah. It was simply ahead of the curve. It was started doing these things in much bigger way as the banks were going to be doing further down the road. Yeah. So 97, 98 really was a rehearsal for what would happen in a more global systemic fashion, you know, less than a decade later. Right, right, right. So th there's a key point here that the false reliance on models justified and uh too much reliance on leverage right i think ltcm was 30 to 1 or more levered yeah that was another thing in that discussion i talked about policymakers were trying to figure out what the leverage was yeah and i think it was peter fisher who was the open market desk uh, manager said it might be 200 to 1 we can't calculate the leverage and again that's the light bulb should be going off here yes. it's like wait a minute here this is a monetary institution by all by all accounts it really was it was a global euro dollar monetary institution it was a right. non-bank but that didn't mean anything because you know, eventually the rest of the banking system looked like ltcm which right. meant that these banks were no longer banks they were just large regulated hedge funds right right, right. and that really should have been the policymakers saying what is really going on here especially alan greenspan who had spent that time as we talked about before saying we can't track money. We don't know what's going on in the monetary mm -hmm. system. Maybe we should really take a really hard look at what's going on with LTCM because it might not be just the lone wolf out there. You know, we can't calculate its leverage. Let's just scare the crap out of everybody. Right. Yeah. No, they didn't. They just, you know, rationalized it. There's a there's this great quote from Taleb. He says, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Most are dangerous. And it sounds right. like this was just that lesson learned the hard way. Could you speak a little bit to the mechanics of this off balance sheet um, mode of operating? Is this just them using these accounting equations to value assets that are just showing up as a dollar figure on their balance sheet without um, uh, displaying the calculation behind it? How does this work exactly? Yeah, and it's, it depends on the instrument being used. But you know, for example, a derivative transaction. We'll do a currency. I'll, you and I will do a currency swap. I'll swap. You know let's say a billion dollars in US dollars for the equivalent in yen. Well, mm -hmm. what goes on my balance sheet isn't that billion dollars that I've basically given you as a liability. Mm -hmm. What goes on my balance sheet is the market value of that swap because mm -hmm. there's future cash flows involved in how we model, how does the dollar exchange value change versus the yen? Mm -hmm. So all that goes on the balance sheet is the market value of that, that particular transaction, not the billion dollars in gross notional, that goes off balance sheet even oh. though in many cases that allows you to do something. And we can think of that as sort of a synthetic cross-currency repo transaction, especially if I demand some kind of collateral and then we mark to market where we, you know, we mark to market collateral. So the, the so liability the, the is actual, not on the balance sheet? The whole thing isn't just the market wow. value goes on the balance sheet. And so you get, you know, you think about this in long, you can create a synthetic repo transaction where almost none of it shows up on somebody's balance sheet because of the way the accounting rules are. And the, that's part of the problem here too, is that you, you don't have to, you, you have to be a finance, you have to understand finance, yeah. number one, but you also have to understand the accounting. Yes. Because when we're talking about bank balance sheets as the actual monetary form, you gotta know how bank balance sheets are accounted for. Right. And what right. banks figured out in this Eurodollar it's a qualitative expansion, is there was any number of ways to manipulate the accounting so that right. they can, stuff as much leverage as possible into a balance sheet, which includes sticking a whole hell of a lot of it off balance sheet. And again, you know, that's where I, I said before, the Enron adopted their model because that's kind of what Enron did. How do I put so much of it off balance yes. sheet, but still within, you know, within the letter of the accounting law? Right, that's, that's the key point there is following the letter, not necessarily the spirit of the law. And they gain this, obfuscation through accounting rule exploitation um yeah i think you know to me part of the monetary reform that needs to be done is to update accounting standards yeah. as stupid and simple as that sound it's you know we were using accounting standards that were developed you know 70 years ago for a world that hasn't existed in generations of lifetimes here right interesting interesting so what the asian financial crisis you said it was a dollar shortage that was related to LTCM's implosion? Yes. In fact, that was what caused it. The okay. lack of liquidity in these markets, which then then uh, 
because of you know risk aversion that grew into these dealer networks that were doing business in Asia meant that dollars became hard to source. And when you're in this type of business, this type of, even whether you think it's quantitative or you've got it risk covers or not, yeah. when you get run into liquidity problems and then you run into markets that become more and more illiquid, which means all of the stuff that you've, that you've been doing gets priced on an illiquid input, right. suddenly your models, which had never accounted for an illiquid marketplace, can't account for these sudden risks that show up out of nowhere, which then leads to collateral calls, yes. which is really the what brings down all of these institutions is they're not collateralized for yeah. any type of movement outside of their, their quantitatively determined margins, which happens far more frequently than the models would have you believe. So LTCM is pricing all of its interest rate swaps based on what it thinks is normal operating conditions. Yeah. And along comes this, this regional dollar shortage, which causes these markets to go haywire. And suddenly your pricing inputs mean well, I thought I had you know 10 billion in good assets off balance sheet that were priced a certain way. Suddenly they're only worth eight. And now all my counterparties are banging on my door at once saying, the prices have moved against you. I need you to collateralize this right away or, or I'm gonna start seizing your assets. Right. And of course it got to the point where LTCM didn't have the collateral to post and they had to go begging to the rest of Wall Street and then the Federal Reserve to try to resolve their, their shortfall. But really it started with the fact that this was a dollar shortage and some of these dollar markets started to go haywire because it had priced these Asian tigers like Thailand and Taiwan yeah. in one way as if they were you know, risk-free yeah. when it turned out to be anything but. And that's really kind of the, the repeating pattern and the repeating theme over and over again is the idea that there is no risk here. And then all of a sudden there is a risk here, except yeah. we can't handle the introduction of risk because the system is actually much more fragile than we believe it to be. Interesting. So again, we have this over-reliance on models, which leads to uh, a lot of leverage, let's just say 30 to one could be more. We don't really know. Actually, Completely unknown about. levels. Exactly. Gives you a very low margin for error, right? Because you're very small capital base relative to your, your notional position. And then you get these, which can, if you get outside that margin of error, you get into collateral calls. And these can be cascading because all of these institutions are similarly under collateralized, right? And that yeah, because is... you have exposure, you know, LTCM has exposure to the interest rate swap market. It starts to go against them. They have to post collateral. They'll yeah. usually have to borrow collateral. They're, you know, the other side of the transaction might be another bank. Right. All of a sudden the bank is exposed. If LTCM doesn't have the collateral, now they have lost potential yeah. at their balance sheet. And it's not just LTCM, it's not just this other bank. There's usually eight, nine, 10 other banks. Right. That this are is, exposed um, to LTCM too. The rush down the Exeter pyramid, right? To from higher, what is it? To greater liquidity, basically. Right. And away Except from that risk. in this instance, there's nothing at the bottom because there right. is no currency that you can convert into. I mean, you can't convert an off-balance sheet interest rate swap into, you know, physical currency. It yeah. doesn't work. Because wow. what would you do? And that's, you know, that's really kind of what the FOMC was struggling with. Not again, you don't have much sympathy for these idiots, but yeah. that's what they were struggling with is they're trying to figure out, we can't even figure out what the hell these people are doing, but we know that they have, you know, they're creating exposures to banks. Yeah. And the other thing about it was that, you know, nobody had heard of LTCM before all of this crisis started, even though their balance sheet had ballooned to something like 10 billion. Yeah. And then their off balance sheet had ballooned to some, I mean, 10 billion in the 90s was a lot for a, a, lot. Yeah, yeah. a hedge fund. Yeah. And their off balance sheet exposures, they couldn't even calculate. So it was yeah. almost out of nowhere, this monster showed up that had some kind of linkage in, into this this global dollar reservoir that was seemingly going wrong. And there yeah. wasn't, you know, LTCM wasn't the only motive failure. The biggest problem in the, the Asian financial crisis was actually Japanese banks. Hmm. You had a wave of bank failures in Japan based on this dollar shortage proposition that in one instance, the Bank of Japan and the Treasury Department, the Finance Ministry of Japan went banging on the door of the Federal Reserve saying, we need a dollar swap from you guys because our banks are going out of business because they can't obtain dollars. Yeah. So it was all of this nasty offshore dollar stuff going backwards that nobody could you know, we didn't understand it. We couldn't, we couldn't pin it down. Yeah. We don't know what's on anybody's balance sheet. And this is exactly describing what would happen in 2007, 2008. But this, so this, I mean, using LTCM as a case study, this was a similar situation with the, the Japanese banks more generally, right? They were in similar positions. 
Um, and so this cascading collateral calls and collapse was just basically taking out Japanese banks too. Which of course, as we know from history, when you have a, that kind of a bank run, yeah. even though it wasn't a depository run like it had right. been in the past, this yeah. was an interbank run, yes. which is exactly what 2007, 2008 was. Yeah. So it was a bank run, but it was an interbank run, which yeah. when you start having failures, what does that do? It just leads right. to the cascading effect, yeah. which creates not just you know a nervousness in the interbank system, but it also leads yeah. to illiquid market inputs. Back to your point about expectation-based system, those expectations invert, right? And all of a sudden yeah. it cuts against you as fast as it expanded. Yeah, it's non-linear, right? All yes. the stuff, you know, the risk shows up. It's not like it's okay, a little bit here, there, or there. Yeah. It's almost in, in some of these cases, like LTCM's final days, it's it's not just it's not even exponential, it's all or nothing. Yes. You're kind of in business one day and the next business next day this is gone. You didn't yeah. you didn't see coming the fact that you have, you know, a eight billion dollar collateral call that you, you cannot possibly meet. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. So this is a core property of leverage, too, right? It amplifies gains and can lead to total ruinous losses. So this is just leverage being realized in the system, ultimately, right? The degree of leverage. Right. Hidden money, hidden leverage, because we yeah. don't know, nobody bought, you know, again, as we said before, the regulators and authorities were only too happy to be relieved of this global money problem. And they just simply thought that they could hold the wolf by the ears with yeah. this expectations policy, which, I mean, you know, as long as it didn't impact the United States, Alan Greenspan was like, nah, not yeah. my problem. It's a bunch of Asian stuff. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. should have said, no, dollar system, global financial system, interconnected. The fact that it stayed outside of the United States in 97 and 98 was in some ways a matter of just sheer randomness. Yeah. And then so things get a little bit extra ugly, I think, with LTCM because who, I mean, who are the LPs of LTCM? Because now they had enough political clout to go knock on the door of the Fed and get a bailout, right? Essentially. Well, I mean, part of it was, that they were doing business with Wall Street, really Lombard Street, but Wall, you know, the prototypical, you know, Wall yeah. Street banks. So, you know, it was Goldman Sachs, it was Morgan Stanley, it was all the bold bracket names. Yeah. So they're the ones, as we said before, like, why did they keep the central bank ridiculous game around? Because the central banks gave them political cover to do all this crap. Right. That's really what, you know, um, that's really the the idea of, of um uh, too big to fail came from mm. it was the idea that look we have this game we like the way it makes it privileges us we make our own money we're making money at making money we just need a central bank to give us enough political cover so that we can continue to do this over and over again and that's right. really what ltcm was was the idea that they had you know everybody on wall street had exposure to ltcm yeah therefore they you know they went to the fed and said look if you don't, if you don't let us help us buy or bail out LTCM, it's going to create, it's going to create a whole bunch. You know the the stuff going on in Japan right now, it's going to go on here. Right. And that was enough to convince Greenspan and everybody else, especially politicians. You know, as as little as central bankers understood what was going on, politicians didn't understand a fraction right. of what central bankers did. Of course. So it was very easy to just let's work this out in this way. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, this is where all the moral hazard gets realized. And is that not the, that's the common refrain. It seems like when these guys do go to the central bank to be, get bailed out, it's like, you have to do this, right? The whole world's going to collapse. You see what's happening in Japan. It's going to happen here. Um, but that's the thing. I, it was correct. That was the right. I mean, they weren't doing it because, you know, some nefarious reason they actually believed it because it was true. Right. <laughs> it was but it wasn't then, it wasn't something they made up because again that's exactly what happened not even 10 years later right they were saying look if you if we don't nip this in the bud it will spread everywhere yeah and so they, they kind of got lucky that they nipped it in the bud and that's where that's that's that and of course what did that do to the legend of you know the greenspan myth mm. it only it only enhanced it that much more mm. because it made it seem like the fed really could sure. do whatever it wanted to do which leads to even they more risk no idea yeah Less capitalization, more leverage, more risk taking. Yep. It sows the we seeds the for the Fed is behind us. Crisis. They'll bail everything out. If push comes to shove, the Fed will come riding to the rescue. That Incredible. was a big part of the, that last stage of euro dollar, the euro dollar system that really got pushed into a mania. Yeah. Was the fact that 
that, oh, LTC, the Fed was really effective at LTCM. And that's really where you see, for example, the housing bubble in the United States. That wasn't specifically, you know, 2003 to 2007. The housing bubble really started in 95, 96, and 97. And then right. it really took off from 97 forward, partially because of this. Because the idea that we can pile leverage into balance sheets, we can manipulate them, we can quantify them in all these mathematical models, and it all just is riskless. There's no risk anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the core issue, I think, with central banking is that this is purely anti-capitalist, right? We're talking about always just papering over losses, deferring, bailing out, kicking the can down the road. And it just makes the ultimate consequence worse and worse. I mean, every crisis is worse than the previous, it seems like. Right. And that's, that was the point of convertibility in, in our hard money, sound money system was that yeah. we're trying to weed out the bad actors, right? And if we can't weed out the bad actors, the bad actors are not going to be the only bad actors. Everybody else is going to want to be like the bad actors, right? As we just said with the SNL system, yeah. SNL yeah. said, "I want to be like the bad people because they're the ones making all the money, and they seem to be the ones that are protected." Yeah. As soon as you reach a certain level of confidence and a certain level of reputation, then you're insulated from your own bad decisions, which is the exact the opposite of what we want to have. Yeah, LTCM blows up. The because of, I guess, their counterparties, they get a bailout. Um, was this the first time a hedge fund like this was bailed out? Yeah. In fact, yeah. you know, it's sort of the, the introduction to the world to the idea of a hedge fund, which is essentially taking this wholesale balance sheet euro dollar model to its most logical extreme. Now, whether it's, you know, logical extreme, maybe not sensical extreme or sane extreme, but most logical extreme is to strip down the financial institution to its basic core, which is in this this uh, this this version of banking in this non-bank form, is essentially entirely balance sheet creations. No cash, no deposits, no depositors, no regulators, nobody on your back. Just pure balance sheet finance done to its you know most elegant. And then some of the stuff is really beautiful and interesting and. So uh, some of it's, you know, like usually, like a lot of things, it's a good idea, just bastardizing, taking to extreme, but that's all really the hedge funds were, were simply this, this version of banking taken to its completely, you know, uh, beyond all of uh, existing limits to, to test out this money for money idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's kind of like the apex financial abstraction in a way of, of organizations at least. Um, and it's so ironic. I mean, the irony just abounds here, even the name long-term capital management, <laughs> they, they thought they had completely tamed risk and then they blew up five years in. Yeah. It's um, like the Bear Stearns hedge funds that blew up in 2007. They were all called high grade. We can name them whatever you want. It doesn't mean it's, and let's, but that's, you know, it's funny, but it's, it illustrates part of the problem here, which is they call themselves long-term capital management when there's nothing long-term, there's no capital. And the management is, you know, the brand new financial quantitative modeling, but how would anybody know otherwise? And that's kind of the point is that, they're out there doing all these things. They're not alone. They're out there doing all these things, but nobody's keeping an eye on them. Mm -hmm. Not even the people themselves working in this. That's part of the issue too, is, you know, I talk to a lot of bankers all the time who are doing this stuff themselves. And they're like, we had no idea what we're doing. And now that I see the big picture of the Eurodoll system, it kind of makes sense. But wow. you know, as I was working on the bank's repo desk, I really didn't understand what was going on. So there was really this lack of knowledge as everything's happening which you know leads to the fact that uh, these things just continue to proliferate because there's really no mechanism to rein it all in, including understanding what everybody's doing. That's interesting. So it's opaque even from within. It's just oh, it's it's almost it's you know forest from the trees kind of a thing. Yeah, interesting. So then we go into the dot com bubble from there, which is sort of parallel to it which, you know, that's going on, obviously, at the same time of LTCM. And of course, the dot-com bubble reached its absolute insane apex in those years after the Asian financial crisis was successfully um, mitigated by the Federal Reserve and Alan Greenspan and all that. When Alan Greenspan, well, throughout that time, you remember, was like, 
I'm really uncomfortable with all this because right. we don't even know what's going on. We have no idea that we really didn't do much with LTCM. Yeah, we bailed it out, but we have no idea what's going on here and stock prices are going through the moon. It's, you know, that was just a recipe for, you know, only bad things. So that narrative of the, do- I mean, even the name, the dot-com crisis, I think most people just believe people got irrationally exuberant about tech stocks and then the market corrected back to reality. But what was the actual, I mean, looking through the lens of the Euro dollar system and everything we've laid out, what, how would you describe that narrative differently from what is traditionally uh, believed to be true? I think that's true on the way up, that the fact that people did get irrationally exuberant because it was, again, we don't really know what's going on. The global system is, is prospering in a way we hadn't seen since, you know, maybe in the 1920s. So we've seen this global wave of prosperity. It seems like there's lots of money flowing everywhere. And we also have, you know, any number of future technologies that we can think is valuable, invaluable. It doesn't matter if there's current earnings or not. So all these rationalizations combine to the to the to, to lead to this out this completely detached pricing mechanism in the stock market. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, the Eurodollar system was creating this prosperity, not the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve was given all the credit for it. So everybody thought, again, like banks, the idea that there's no risk involved in anything. Now, what I think, uh, where I think it goes maybe a little bit contrary, my opinion goes contrary to what most people think is on the dot-com crash, was that expectations were forced to be normalized by any number of reasons, but it was not a monetary crash. That's why, for example, the dot-com crash, like the crash of 87, didn't lead to a massive economic setback or even a depression like everybody associates with stock market crashes because the monetary system was largely unscathed by the dot-com bubble because it was sort of it was sort of you know in the same area, but they two were not necessarily, they were certainly not directly related. Mm-hmm. And so there was no monetary consequence to stock prices falling. And in fact, that's why the US experienced one of the mildest recessions on record, despite what had been one of the largest stock market crashes on record, because the monetary system kept going fine and the housing bubble kept going fine, which is the much bigger bubble. The monetary bubble kept going, even though stock expectations were knee jerked lower because they had gotten so far so far out of whack right right so and a lot of the roaring 90s that was driven by uh, a boom in real estate prices as well right so you had money flowing into u.s real estate u.s equities presumably u.s treasuries as well i guess through this other euro dollar mechanism you outlined earlier um is this yep. is, is this just money flowing into store value assets it's flowing everywhere into anything. And look, the, the 1990s was not simply just a, a bubbly period. It was, I mean, it was a lot of asset bubbles started out in that period, but there was a lot of legitimate economic growth, not just in the United States, but around the rest of the world right. that happened because of this, you know, the monetary system, the Euro dollar system was doing its job. Right. It was doing its job only too well, which is yeah. why we had these excesses. But by and large, it was greasing the wheels of global prosperity which of course then usually feeds into risk taking and asset bubble rationalizations because you think the economy is the global economy is legitimately prosperous so maybe there isn't and this is going to go on forever you know we've reached a permanent plateau of prosperity so there is no risk but that's really you know again it was the, the combination of lack of understanding what's really going on and the fact that there weren't really any Situation, there weren't really any circumstances that would lead anyone to believe that the situation was any different because the euro dollar system could continue on, the global credit bubble could continue to expand regardless of the stock market. It kept going on further and further and further until it reached its, its, its most insane proportions in that in that little narrow window between the dot com recession and 2007. Right, right, right. So that's interesting. Yeah, this whole, I mean, again, back to the the principle of all of this is we needed these deferred settlement systems to accelerate transactions, to make transactions cheaper, really. You're lowering transaction costs so that you can grease the wheels of commerce and um, facilitate economic growth. But the flip side to that is that all of this counterparty risk and systemic risk that accumulate as a result of an inability uh, to settle with finality, I guess, in a lot of ways, um, 
That's interesting. So we've always kind of been stuck with this problem as human beings between the need to make transactions really cheap and easy and seamless, but then the the trust that's inherent to that. Taking them too far, right? And going yeah. too far in the other direction, which is what we talked about, I think, in you know, the, the crux of our earlier discussion about what is money and elasticity, right? Mm-hmm. This is the downside of an, of an elastic currency system is that it can be taken too far, yeah. whereas the downside of an inelastic system is that none of this stuff happens to begin with. And sort of it's, you know, what is the what is the better trade-off? Is it better to have an inelastic system where some of these excesses don't happen, but we take a lot off of economic growth? Or do we like the elastic system or this perfectly elastic system where we get a lot of this economic growth, but we also get the asset bubbles and imbalances and excesses that go along with it? And I think, you know, it's it doesn't have to be an either or, but that's essentially the two parts of the debate. They go back in, you know, sound money, uh, sound money debate that goes back for a very, very long time is, you know, which one is it? And I don't think it has to be an either or situation, yeah. but if we don't want one or the other. I mean, you know, I, people think that I'm advocating for the euro dollar system and extolling its virtues. It did have some virtues, obviously, yeah. but I'm not. I'm just trying to describe to people what actually happened so they can understand how we got here and where we're going yes. simply because it did go too far. Because as we said before, all of the incentives were skewed in that direction and they favored the wrong kind of people to, to take advantage of the incentives without any of these self-correction mechanisms yeah. that are usually inherent in a pri- uh, private free market capitalist system. Yeah. That's really kind of the the uh, the, the monkey, the, the wrench in the works, if you will, because yeah. there was nothing to really stop it. It was supposed to be Alan Greenspan, right? Everybody thought, well, if, if things get out of control, he'll raise the federal funds rate when the banks would just laugh, as we found in the middle 2000s, when Alan Greenspan raised the federal funds rate and the monetary system only went into overdrive. Yeah. It really just. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a good point. That um, I mean, there needs to be really this option for convertibility seems like you could, <laughs> It's really, you know, what we're talking about convertibility is the public's ability to put the brakes on. Yeah. But we're not really just talking about the public, right? We're talking about, let's think about it in terms of information systems. A public is a widespread, very broad-based information filter. Yes. And so if the public is given the ability to put the brakes on the financial system, it's because we want this widespread, broad-based information filter to be able to do that, which makes sense to me. We're talking about a sort of like big data, for example, but not in that centralized fashion. But, you know, the public public can encompass more information and sort it out far better than, you know, Alan Greenspan could sitting around in his his cozy little conference table trying to pick apart LTCM's balance sheet. I think that the the public's ability as an information filter to put the brakes on would have put the brakes on long before any of this. Right. And that's really really the benefit. Because it's intrinsically more intelligent than just Alan Greenspan. You're talking about the entire intelligence of the marketplace, which is by definition more intelligent than any individual market actor or any group even of market actors over the long run, right? The mar- That's why the market is the referee, so to speak. That's really, but then the flip side of that is what economists argue, which is that you can't depend on the public because it's driven by emotion rather than rational behavior. And that's the argument that they made, as we talked about before, the 19th century, all those depressions and deflationary currency circumstances that arose there. The public got blamed for that, essentially, yeah. you know, because they kept saying that the public would just fly into a tizzy over any little rumor, whether true or not, and that would, they would cause a banking panic that didn't need to be caused. That was sort of the uh, the counter argument to what we just yeah. said is that, look, we need to have a detached public institution that can filter information better than a rational, emotional public. Yeah, so that's really one- which one do you believe? Yeah, that one doesn't hold water for me, honestly. Me neither. Just, but that's that's been the argument since yeah. you know before the Great Depression was that the public cannot be counted on to act in a public, you know, in a uh, in a widespread uh, manner of you know the the public, the greater good, for example, social responsibility. I hate using that term, but yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And I, there, it doesn't hold water for me because I agree, public can become emotional. We know that, but I think there's a check on that too, which is the profit motive. Um, of each market actor, right? You can exploit those opportunities when the market becomes overbought or oversold based on emotion. 
that's when the smart market actor will go in and and you know arbitrage it. We'll turn a profit basically on that on that emotion. Um, so, yeah, that one's. I guess that's it's where it's hard to swallow, isn't it? Right, you know. That's the crux of the argument where I, I the Keynesian viewpoint loses me. That you need a social yeah. institution to filter the market. I don't agree with that. So, no, but I see. I, I you know there is value in that opinion too because on the other side. You know, it may be that the broad-based public, you know, uh, you know, information filter mm. isn't perfect either. And I think we need to recognize that it is not perfect course, and that it is yeah. inherently messy. Yeah. And so that, you know, there's there is wiggle room here for okay, maybe that's the best sort of system, but can it be improved maybe by a mechanical central bank feeding some kind of elasticity to it? So mm. it doesn't, you know, when the public does get irrational or maybe doesn't make the right decisions. You know the profit motives get skewed or whatever whatever actually does happen yeah. you know the uh, markets are not perfect and efficient that there's some sort of check it's not an overriding check but there's some way some some mechanism in place that we can try to bring it back into a more stable position and that's really it's it's, it's a really tough argument to make in either direction because yeah. it's easy to point to excesses on both you know the great depression versus what we're just talking about the euro dollar right. credit bubbles yeah those are really kind of the two extremes and maybe there's a better way to do it but yeah. if i have to pick between the two i'm with you robert it's yeah. I'll, I'll take the public broad-based information filter every day of the week yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no it's, it's not it's a, as long as you believe you really recognize it's not perfect it's right. messy but yeah. it's a hell of a lot better yeah and arguably more volatile in the short run even like we'd have less of these giant blow-ups but we yeah. probably have more small blow-ups along the way which and um, you know the giant blow-up we had 14 years ago has meant you know being robbed of 14 years of economic growth which right. is an incredible disaster of immense proportion it's not just yeah. a it's 14 years and remember compounding is the most powerful force in the universe yeah 14 years of lost growth is the, you know, it's socialism and everywhere. De-civilizing. Yeah, absolutely.